Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We are in week three of Advent. So in the church calendar, the historic capital C church calendar, Advent is actually the start of the calendar year. And it's interesting because our calendar doesn't start with the moment of the birth of Christ, or at least that we celebrate the birth of Christ, but rather in the weeks leading up to that. It's meant to build a sense of waiting and anticipation and longing for the advent or arrival, that's what that word means, coming or arrival, of Christ. And as the church, we celebrate not only the past arrival of Christ, but also have this season of longing help to form our hearts to long for the future coming of Christ again. And each week focuses on a theme, peace, hope, joy, and love. This year, we decided to go through these four weeks focusing on um, expressions or, or words that were spoken by different people involved in the birth narrative as we look at these themes. So last week, Sam talked about the hope that was expressed in this moment, so ripe with anticipation when miraculously pregnant Elizabeth and miraculously pregnant Mary come together, and you see that sense of anticipation. And Elizabeth says to Mary, you are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. And today we look at Mary's response to what Elizabeth just said to her. And she pours from an overflow. It just comes out of her heart, this song of praise that Jade just read. My soul glorifies the Lord. She just pours out praise. But if you're all familiar with the Christmas story, you know that that posture is pretty impressive. Our young Mary is maybe 15 years old. That would be the age where she would already be betrothed to be married or engaged to be married. And you know that this story, this news would come at enormous cost to her. Not only is she 15 and never had been married before, but with this um, news, she would know right away that her reputation in that culture is going to be forever tarnished. There's no undoing that in her, in, in her near future. She is going to end up being at the mercy of Joseph's decision. In a patriarchal society like they were in, a woman depended on the covering of a man in her life for so many things, be it her husband, her father, an older brother. That was really important for her, for her well-being in that culture. And this news would not help her ability to find a future match if Joseph decided now to not marry her. She's very poor in addition, and so she doesn't have a whole lot. Now she's poor, she's unmarried, she's pregnant. Joseph has every legal and cultural right. Hear that too. Not only the legal right, but culturally it would be completely acceptable for Joseph to call off this marriage. Would anyone even believe her story if she chose to tell it, that an angel had come to her, that she, a virgin, was now pregnant? Thankfully, we know on this side of the story that God must have thought of that. And he sent the angel to also talk to Joseph. He knew, if no one else did, Joseph knew that her story was indeed true. I have so much admiration for Joseph in so many ways. If we could tack on one more week in Advent, I would just love to talk more about him and even the little bit that we know about him. But remember this, at this point, at this song of praise, I don't 
think that she and Joseph had had a conversation about his decision yet. I don't think that Joseph's been visited by the angel yet. According to Luke's narrative, Mary receives this word from the angel, immediately goes and spends her first trimester with her older relative, Elizabeth. She gets to go through those three months of mourning sickness and nervousness and processing this news with an older woman who's six months ahead of her in her own pregnancy. I don't think that the people around her when she left town knew yet that she was pregnant. So I don't think in the moment of this praise that we know what Joseph's eventual decision was going to be. And yet, despite her precarious situation, her potential disgrace in her village and the potential, she could probably assume the potential loss of this future husband in Joseph. Despite all of that, it is a song of praise that pours out of Mary's heart. How can that be? Because Jade just read it to us, I think that was in the NIV. I'm going to switch translations just because sometimes that helps with familiar words to hear them in new translations. And I want to read this song according to Eugene Peterson's message translation. So we're going to take a look at this. Um, This is, by the way, in Luke 1, uh, starting in verse 46. So after Elizabeth says this to her, Mary says... I am bursting with God news. I'm dancing the song of my Savior God. So here she starts, Lotus, we're going to look at the arc here. She starts deeply personal, just expressing her heart. Her heart is just pouring out. God took one look at me and look what happened. I'm the most fortunate woman on earth. What God has done for me will never be forgotten. So now she's taking this just from her own personal heart and she's putting her place in like forever history. So that already is like a big step in what she's processing here. It will never be forgotten. The God whose name is holy set apart from all others. His mercy flows wave after wave. She's just transitioning to full praise here, just about who God is, on those who are in awe before him. He bared his arm and showed his strength. Now, I want you to listen, because here, young Mary starts to preach it. She's just preaching now. She's preaching about God's justice, God's economy of justice in the kingdom that's coming. Just listen to this. His mercy flows. Okay, he bared his arm and showed his strength, scattered the bluffering braggarts. He knocked tyrants off their high horses, pulled victims out of the mud. The starving poor sat to a banquet. The callous rich were left out in the cold. He embraced his chosen child, Israel. He remembered and piled on the mercies piled them high. It's exactly what he promised beginning with Abraham and right up to now. We hear in this Magnificat her own personal response, her placement in the story, just downright praise to God and then an acknowledgement of God's kingdom ethic coming true in this moment. And she knows her role in God's ancient promises, starting with Abraham, being now fulfilled. So she's unmarried, she's poor, she's now pregnant, she has this cultural cost of the scandal in front of her. She sets all of that aside, and against all odds, this woman is overflowing with joy. We see this as an overflowing. And I believe that Mary is able to access that joy so immediately, overflowing despite the circumstances, because she has in her life, regardless of this moment, it just so happens she is rooted in a deep God-sized view of the kingdom that was promised and the kingdom that's coming. You guys, Mary knows God's story 
so deeply his promises, his character, his future plans. And she is quick to believe that this plan is coming to pass through her in such an unlikely player in this kingdom turnover that she's been waiting for. She knows she will bear Emmanuel, God with us. Now, as I was thinking about Mary a lot this week, I don't want to project on any of you, so I'm just going to say from my perspective, but I don't think I'm alone, in being a Protestant who has had a tricky relationship with Mary. And I'll just share my own experience about this. So we used to have a tradition, we'd go over to the Cabot's house for Christmas Eve, as families, and we all had this lovely, glittery, sparkly party. And then all of my Catholic friends went to midnight mass, and I thought I was missing out on all the fun, and so I would ask my parents if I could go to midnight mass with them. And the cathedral is beautiful, and it's glittery, and all of that beauty and sparkle and ornateness was lovely. But I remember that when I was there, first of all, I didn't know the words, and I was never doing it right, but, but our, my friends were very gracious about that. But I remember going there and realizing Mary is everywhere. Mary is everywhere in their art, in their prayers, in their songs. There is so much of Mary. And as a young Protestant, somewhere along the line when I would think about this and be like, what's this about? And people, I don't even remember this being a direct message, but the thing I received was that, yes, the Catholics venerate their saints. They honor the saints, Mary probably highest among them. They pray to saints to intercede on their behalf and uh, pray to God as well. But be careful, little Protestant, because if you sing and pray to somebody who isn't God, you might end up accidentally worshiping Mary. So the message was, don't make too much of Mary. And I don't know how that got picked up. Again, nobody explicitly said that. It was just like, we don't do that. Don't make too much of Mary. So other than really wanting to someday be her in the Christmas pageant, I never was. I never got to be Mary. I still carry baggage. My sister was an angel. I was a shepherd in a brown sheet like every year. But I never was Mary. I wanted to be Mary in the pageant. I put her figurine up and we'd play with our nativity set. But other than that, I just didn't think much in any case about Mary. But then fast forward and I was 17 and I had the honor and privilege to go on a class trip and we went to Rome and I got to go to the Vatican. And it was back in the day when there wasn't even plexiglass surrounding all of the art. And I walked into St. Peter's Basilica and I mean, wow, that art is meant to evoke wonder and awe and reverence. And it does, even in a young 17 year old who was not exactly practicing following the way of Jesus at the time. I walked into this place and it was so beautiful. And to my right, without even the plexiglass covering it was the Pieta, which if you know it, is this statue of Mary holding Jesus. And it's so ironic. You guys, I wept in front of that statue or at least had a big tear falling out of my eyes. I've never cried at art before or after. I don't think I've ever wept in front of something. I just sat there. And ironically, because number one, she's stone. And yet this was the first real Mary I encountered. And number two, the Catholics saved Mary for me. That was the moment when I was like, she's real. She's She's 3D. She had life and story. And I was wowed in that moment about Mary. But then, even though she'd become real, fast forward a ways later. And I remember around Christmas time, I would think of Mary differently as I became a mom. Suddenly, I 
thought about her role in the raising of Jesus in this gap that we know very, very little about. What was it like to be the mother of Jesus of Nazareth, knowing what you know and kissing his boo-boos and tucking him in and saying prayers together before bed and reading scripture together? When I think about the teachings of Jesus that I now read and study in the Gospels, how much of him was shaped by the knowledge that Mary had of God's story, bless you, and what she taught him all throughout his young life. He knew scripture, of course, and he's the son of God and all of that. I I can't say what would happen if it hadn't been Mary, but God knew that Jesus' life and his role and his part in the story would be affirmed and encouraged by this young woman who knew scripture, who knew the story of God. So she responds to her place in the story and what naturally pours out is the scripture. So again, when I think about the teachings of Jesus, how much of that must have been shaped by this woman, Mary? Walter Brueggemann has an Advent devotional that actually goes through those um, names for the Messiah that um, Henry read, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He reflects on each of those. And it's interesting because he says, the capacity of Jesus for the wonderful, the impossible, constituted an immediate threat to all established power arrangements. He's promptly seen to be dangerously subversive because he challenges and contradicts all uh, normal assumptions. Indeed, he inverts power arrangements just as his mother Mary anticipated. Her song is an anticipation of what will follow in the gospel narrative. And when I think of that, I think she knew, she probably sang over him this very song about the character and promises of God and about the kingdom of God. In his young life, she must have affirmed and encouraged him as the son of God with this great reversal that he then ushers in. And we read him teaching on all throughout the gospels. A few years ago, Pentatonix came out with that song, Mary, Did You Know? I like to sing the song. I'm not going to ditch this, the song, okay? I like to think that I could be in an a cappella group and sing along with them, Mary, Did You Know? But it goes like this. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? The child you delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know? And a few years ago, when I was in seminary, some of my sassy seminarian friends found a version of the song. Instead of Mary, did you know? It said, Mary freaking knew. And it's from this Magnificat. Mary friggin' knew. I had to ask a couple people if it was okay for me to use that word, people younger than me. They said it was okay, so if that is offensive, I apologize. But Mary friggin' knew, knew that her baby boy had walked where angels trod, that when she kissed her little baby, she kissed the face of God. Mary knew the only way that she could respond, I imagine, the way she did in that really scary moment was that Mary knew She knew, and therefore, she poured out instant, joyful praise. This, to me, is an amazing encouragement of what a genuine expression of joy looks like in the midst of hardship. Joy is one of those tricky things because it can, in fact, exist in bad, tough 
grief-filled, scary, anxious situations can coexist with joy. I have find those much harder to coexist with happiness when I'm feeling any of those uncomfortable emotions, but I have experienced uncomfortable emotions still uh, being there at the same time as a deeper joy. And it's, just, it's a very fascinating thing that joy can coexist with Mary's situation. We actually hear in the life of Jesus uh, in John 16, he teaches his disciples that he is going to give a joy that cannot be taken away and a joy that is complete. And he teaches that that joy, the joy that he is talking about and that he is offering is one that is created because Jesus has made a union with us to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The joy that is complete is because I've made a way for a union with you that no one can take away. That's the union that brings the joy that can coexist with Mary's story in this moment. I think in this season when we talk about joy, there's a couple ways that it can bring along some baggage. And I just want to acknowledge that. It's such a simple little word, right? Joy. But on the one hand, companies are pushing it. They are selling it. They're trying to sell you joy. There is actually a marketing technique called joy marketing. They know we want joy and they will intentionally use tactics to sell joy. If you have this, you'll have joy. Share the joy. It's Ready Whip. Like that's their slogan. So I think there's real campaigns that are saying, you want joy and I can give it to you if you only had this. On the other hand, some of the emphasis on joy and Christmas ornaments and holiday cards can make us feel like it's something we're supposed to conjure up. We're supposed to experience it in our, um, in our, in our calendar events that we're going to, especially this time of year. But I love events that conjure up joy, that create joy. Those are the best, but it's not always the case. And sometimes we can feel almost a sense of shame if we do not feel the joy that everyone around us seems to be advertising or speaking of or sending me Christmas cards about. And we can feel this sense like something's wrong if I can't access the joy that is promised. But there can be a kind of a pressure and you can't, joy has to be practiced. Here's where I'm going. I have a lot of thoughts and I'm trying trying to get myself focused on why I'm saying this. Mary teaches me the practice of accessing our joy with intention, with intentionality. And that is because she knew the kind of joy that was actually promised to her. And that's what she practiced enough that regardless of hard circumstances, she could access that kind of joy, despite all the unknowns in her story. It's the deeper joy of knowing your place in God's story because of Christ. Our joy has been named complete because it's not, it's based on God's promises and it's already been done. And so there's a, the joy that we have been told we have access to. And so if we are practicing learning how to access our joy, then in the moments when hard things happen, it's able to be um, accessed a lot more easily, if that makes sense. That's what Mary teaches me in this Magnificat, not just what God's kingdom is doing. And that's a silly just, like it's a huge deal. What is God doing through this kingdom inbreaking that's going to turn all things upside down? The great reversal ushered in by Jesus, all of that. But I also learn in the Magnificat that Mary practiced joy and when things were the hardest, she therefore could access it. And so I want to just pause for a minute and say this. I, as we consider joy this morning, this is not my intention to 
joy shame you if you are not accessing joy right now. If you are a follower of Christ and you say, joy is nowhere on my radar, Melissa, there's, I'm not joy shaming you for not having easy access to joy. I actually think there's two reasons why. Well, there's a lot of reasons. My two main reasons to specify why I am not joy shaming you. Number one, that doesn't work. When was the last time somebody shaming you actually said, oh, forgive me, now I'll be joyful. Like that would be silly. But number two, the other reason is I truly believe that shame is that one of the enemy's biggest ways to block off that easy access to joy that we should, could potentially access. So I feel like the enemy uses shame. And I I, want to, in the name of Jesus, just say there's no room for shame in a conversation around accessing joy. What I do want to submit to you today is that there are actual practices that can help cultivate access to your joy despite hard circumstances. So I'm going to get to that in just a minute, but I want to point out two reasons that I believe this in my heart. Number one is Mary. All the reasons I've said, such a hard circumstance. She could access joy because she knew the story. Oh, you know what, Allie, a while ago there was a slide and I totally missed it. Will you, you know which one I mean, the reference slide? You guys, look at these references. These are the footnotes of the Magnificat as designed by um, th- this woman. I, I took it from her Advent devotional, Wrapped in Grace. It goes through the verses and it tells you the other scripture to compare to. This, Mary was so seeped in scripture that when her mouth opened, it just poured out. This is her cliff notes on where am I getting this information of why I'm calling you the most holy, all of that. How I know that the hungry will sit at a banquet. How do I know this? Because she was this deeply seeped. I believe that these footnotes, her life in the word of God and knowing God is the reason that she could so easily access joy, even despite her hard circumstances. So Mary and her cliff notes and the Magnificat are one way that I know this could be possible. The other one is Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set before him was able to endure the cross. Jesus could access a joy that kept him walking forward. He could make that decision because he'd been seeped like Mary in the knowledge of God's plan and therefore could access a joy that could drive him forward despite his circumstances. So I'm saying all of this and it might sound like I'm not feeling, I'm not accessing joy easily right now. What can we do? And so I would say, that something I would uh, encourage you to do is actually a uh, um, practice that is offered to us in Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. You can find this in 953 of your Pew Bible. And we're going to spend some time reflecting here. So feel free to grab these words in front of you if you want to. Page 953, Philippians 4, starting in 4. The author says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoice is, if joy is the noun, rejoice is the verb. Like just do joy. Do joy in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Do joy. No matter how anxious or anything you are, just hold that, whatever that is, before, this is my paraphrase now, before the Lord in prayer and petition. And then the author says this. This is the practice. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I believe Mary thought a whole lot about such things throughout all of her young years. She thought about the noble truth of God's reversed kingdom. She felt that she could ponder the lovely words of scripture, including the psalmists. They do this all the time. They hold out their anxiety, their anger, their fear, their worry. The Philippians author does not think those things shouldn't be there or won't be there. 
are. Quite the opposite. We are told that there will be suffering. So having joy isn't about having an absence of the other things. It's being able to access something deeper despite the worry and the fear and all of those things. And so this author is saying what Mary, I think, did all her life according to those cliff notes. Think about these things. And when the anxiety comes, when the fear comes, you'll have easier access to them. You'll be able to access these truths. And so what I want to speak over all of us this morning as we think about joy is that number one, joy can coexist with the uncomfortable stuff. If you're in a place right now in your life where there's uncomfortable emotions, grief, fear, worry, anxiety, loneliness, uh, any, any uncomfortable emotion, I want you to know that practicing helps us to access a joy that's already been promised to you. It's not something you need to conjure up. It's not something you need to wait for a feeling to come to access it. It's a gift that's been given, according to John 16, by access through Christ into a joy that is complete because we know where we are in God's story. And so this morning, we've been leaving in Advent a little bit more time for reflection. And I want to give you these reflection questions to maybe sit with before I pray. In a season that sells joy, how do we choose? to stay rooted to a deeper joy through Christ, the joy that is complete that we've been promised and given through Christ's union with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where do you want joy to infiltrate the unlikely places in your life right now? Where do you look at Mary and say, I would be unlikely to sing a song of joy right then. I want joy in this scary place, in this lonely place. We can name that before the Lord and ask for help in accessing a deeper joy. And then lastly, using that Philippians 4, 8 list, how can we practice setting our minds regularly on Things that are noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Because where we train our minds and our hearts, our mouths overflow. And so that in moments of great discomfort, we still can say that we have joy and we rejoice in the Lord always. We can say, like Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. And we need to know the story and able to enable in order to be able to access joy in moments like those. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, God, I just thank you for this truth. And I hold before you the frustration that it doesn't always make it any easier to access joy. I hold those things as a named truth like the psalmists do time and again. Why, O oh Lord, have you forgotten me? Why are my enemies after me? Save me. Where are you, God? But I will choose to praise you. God, that, taking that posture takes such discipline. I confess sometimes I struggle with that discipline. So Holy Spirit, guide us as we reflect on this. Be with us. Know our deepest longings and help us to feel safe, to name them before you now. And help us, Lord, to figure out ways and practices that actually root us to a deeper joy, a joy that is complete and that the world can never take away. We trust you, Lord Jesus, and we've prayed this in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.